Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Building a personal brand does not necessarily equal publishing books, but most of the world's highest paid and most significant influencers at some point we'll publish books. And today's interview is a chance for you to learn from somebody who has an incredibly unique perspective on books. Even though we don't just talk about books, you're about to hear from Jay Papasan, who has written several books, multiple books that have sold millions of copies. He's also published multiple books that have sold millions of copies. And he's edited books that have sold millions of copies. So, It is an incredibly rare chance to understand the content process, the outlining process, the writing process, and the promotion process of a book, but really much more than a book is your content, creating your signature framework, your body of work, your knowledge base, like your proprietary information and talking about where do those ideas come from, how to shape them, how to package them, and how to promote them. So this is an incredible interview with a very rare insider look at what it takes to create blockbuster, best-selling, huge books with Jay Papasan. You're going to love it. I know you will. We'll get started just after this message. Hi, it's AJ Vaden, and thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. Throughout the course of my life, I just have been in my career, I get so inspired by the fact that I get to be friends with people that I admire, that I look up to, people that I learn from, uh, the people whose books that I read. And uh, Jay Papasan is one of these people, and he is truly multidimensional, him and his wife, uh, as you're about to learn. And I think he just has an extraordinary curiosity and an extraordinary drive for helping people and wanting to serve people. Um, So him and Gary Keller co-authored a book called The One Thing, which you probably have heard of, you've seen it everywhere, um, which has sold 1.3 million copies worldwide. Now this isn't like a book that was like published 25 years ago, like this is in a couple years and it's every single week, 2000 units, 2000 units, 2000 units, like, you know, I see it. um, It was actually number one on the Wall Street Journal Uh, bestseller list. It's been translated to 30 different languages already. And um, Jay's wife, Wendy, they they do some nonprofit stuff with a group called Heroes for Children. 
they also have a large team at Keller Williams. Um, so they sold about 300 homes last year. And then Jay was managing like the whole, he, he's in charge of learning now for all of Keller Williams. And it used to just be kind of like publishing and doing their books. Now he's over all their learning. Um, and they have, I don't even know how many, but last I heard it was like 125,000 agents. So it's, it's a monster thing. And um, we were able to peel off some of his time today. So Jay, buddy, thanks for making time for your old pal Rory. Oh, I'm so happy to get to chat with you, man. I just woke up today excited. So I appreciate that. And I have to tell you, like, there are certain levels of bestseller, right? There's like, okay, I was an Amazon bestseller for a couple hours in the subcategory. Then there's like, <laughs> you know, I was on the USA Today or something and national bestseller list. Then there's New York Times for like a week or two. Then there are the books like The One Thing that sell 1.3 million copies like in a few years. How do you sell a million copies of a book? Like what are, just in your head, I know you've been in publishing a long time. Like what are all the different components that you kind of think of to create something at that scale? Well, I've been really fortunate. When I was still an editorial assistant at HarperCollins back in the 90s, one of the first books I got to work on was a book called Body for Life by Bill Phillips. Mm. And that was a multi-million copy bestseller in the fitness category. And at the time, like I wasn't into weightlifting. I mean, so I just thought it was a chore. I had no appreciation at the time, but you learn some things. The first book I wrote with Gary Keller, the millionaire real estate agent, has sold over a million copies. And I think we'll actually be cracking. We're actually at 1.7 million copies for the wow. one. We're heading towards two. And oh, it's 1.7. So yeah, like as fast as we're able to get your bio off the internet, you're selling hundreds of thousands of copies. <laughs> <laughs> you just told me, hey, I need to update my bio on the internet. So that was yeah. that. three books, you know, that have sold a million copies that I've gotten to be a partner on as an editor and then a co-author twice. So I think one, there is a measure of luck. I think there's also a lot of those books, if they're not driven by personality, and I'll tell you, you look at someone like Rachel Hollis. She has got a, one of those personalities and her husband, they have mass appeal and they're generating good content. And that's a massive accelerator. That's not the game Gary and I have played and nor was it Bill Phillips. They were brand based. So I can talk to the brand, not the personality driven. Is that cool? Okay. Yeah, I like that. So you get a little luck in terms of the timing. All three of those books showed up at a time where there was a mass of people who needed something, a solution, and there was not a solution for it. You know, weight loss has always been there, fat burning. What Bill Phillips did is he said, you don't have to do cardio to burn fat. Actually, weightlifting is better. Mm. And so he changed the way people thought about that exercise group. And so he introduced a new idea at the right time that proved to be true. With a real estate agent, Gary gets all the credit, right? I showed up right about the time we were writing, not conceiving. But he looked up and he said, here is an industry of over a million real estate agents. They don't want to be seen as salespeople. They want to become business people. And so mm -hmm. that book was about the journey. And it showed up at the right time. And all of our competitors use it. They teach it. They just call it the red book. It's got its own brand now. And then one thing showed up at a time, I think, where technology, we've seen the delta. Technology is, is actually changing faster than we humans can adapt. And so when we look at all the opportunities and all the things we have to do and all the things we could do, 
everybody was kind of in this state of overwhelm. And I think the one thing is kind of like a laser that helps people cut through that and get clear about what they need to be doing with all the noise. So mm -hmm. I think all three books benefited from timing and a simple new approach. And I think those are the key ingredients. If you don't have them, you're not building on the right foundation. Interesting. So timing, which control is that. less controllable and a new approach. And you know, the other book that came out, so Procrastinating on Purpose came out around the same time, which has sold like 1.7 total copies itself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then- That's a bestseller too, man. That, was, uh, that book sold really well. Well, it's interesting. The TED Talk did really well. The TED Talk has millions of views. The book hasn't sold as well as Take the Stairs did, but Essentialism also came out about that time and it has sold very well. And so mm -hmm. the, the theme in terms of that approach of just like really like narrowing it down, how do you, like I really, I love that. That's a really keen insight that I've never quite heard someone share. How do you do that? Like, is it more of just like stepping back and going, okay, what's happening in the world? What do people currently, like what's their current modus operandi? And then what is it really that they're missing? And then just kind of like zeroing in on that. Is that kind of the, you know, cause like it's kind of hard to manufacture a new approach. Like the key, as you said, it proved to be true. Bill Phillips introduced a new idea that proved to be true. So have you been able to do that intentionally? You're actually guiding me here. So I'm going to say, let's edit ourselves instead of a new idea let's say a new approach, because I actually think if you looked at all of those books, everything that was in them was already in the world. It was just packaged in a new way that people could digest. And actually, you know, sometimes the truth's been there in front of us all the time until someone shows it to us in a new way and we're able then to do it. So all three of those books presented an approach to doing something that people wanted to do that they could actually do. It was simple enough that they could follow and the results actually showed up after. So when we design books and you know, we've been lucky, we've written 10, 11, depending on if you want to count one that was self-published and two of them have been million copy bestsellers. So I think if we get a third one, then I'll say that we're really firmly onto something. We might just be still in the lucky category. Uh. I think that there's two kinds of books in this business self-help. There is kind of the aspirational, there are books that people, I want what those people have. And those personality-driven books, that can create a high need. I remember we came out at the same time that Gwyneth Paltrow came out with her book on beauty and diet. And it's like, we're competing on the same list with her. I mean, a lot of people want what she has in those categories, right? And so personality-driven, also outcome-driven. I look up and say, what's a problem we can solve? I believe that people, and we all know this, people are more likely to take action to remove pain right, than to pursue pleasure on the grand scale. I think Reed Hastings has a quote that I always butcher, but basically as a business person, you always want to be selling aspirin, not vitamins. So that's mm. kind of a mantra that we use. What problem are we solving? And is there a strong felt need? Like when you look at diet, Dave Ramsey, debt, those are like people have a bad body self-image. If they are in debt, they have a strong desire to fix that problem. So how much depth is there in that felt need? And so if we identify a problem that we think we know the idea for, our approach has been to go and say, all right, let's go personal branding. Who are the 20, 30 people who know more about this topic than anyone else? So we'd interview you, we'd interview your wife, we'd interview all these people. And then our job is to ask, what do they all have in common? 
And in my experience, this is, there's a name for this kind of research, right? And it always escapes me because I'm a writer first, researcher second. But we're looking for the pattern of commonality. What all of those people have in common often is kind of the secret sauce. And it, because 30 people have it in common, it's probably something the average person could choose to do. If I just interview you about personal branding, there may be stuff about your amazing delivery or your amazing ability to do presentations that I will never be able to do. But if I find 30 of you, there may be a pattern that I now can do. And so we're looking for that pattern. We call it a model. Some people would call it a collection of best practices. And if you can then convey that to people in a package they can digest, I think that's a really good recipe for how-to business books. Yeah, well, I love that. I think, um, you know, brand builders, in, in our when we start working with somebody from ground one and they say, what's the first step in a personal brand? Like, where do you start? We say all the time, the genesis of a personal brand is identifying what problem you solve in one word. Like, what is the problem? And even as you said that, like that coming back to me was like, yeah, that is step one is noticing the problem, which is like every entrepreneurial adventure, right? Like, oh, yeah, you notice like, you know, there's this problem that women have in terms of how they feel. And then you create Spanx and like, boom, you know, or you, you, <laughs> you know, you, you notice something and then you kind of start to go, all right, what do people have in common who do this well that maybe everyone's not seeing? And I think that's really cool too about, you said all of those books, all of these ideas already existed in the world, but packaging them up and presenting them in a way that like resonates like with the world at that time. I love that. I really love that. You think back to the last time you saw the Dead Poets Society, you know, where he makes them all stand on their desk and look around the room. It's that you're giving people a new perspective on something they probably already know. But because you've now served it to them in a new way, it's actually digestible. And I'll go back to that word approach that I edited to myself. I believe really firmly there are idea books, right? I think that Malcolm Gladwell has written the best idea books in the world. I mean, some of them change the way I view the world. That's a category of book for sure. We're trying to write books that people go do something based on. So when I use the word approach, like if you give someone a really complicated plan, I'm sorry, they might be able to do it for a little while. In my experience, it falls apart. And sometimes the more complex it looks, the sexier it is to sell. But people can actually live in simplicity, not complexity. So your approach, how you tell them to do it, how you coach them through it, can they remember the steps on their own? It needs to be kind of stupid simple. When I looked at pretty much about, I guess I want to say about eight months into our The One Thing journey, maybe it was 18, I can't remember. It's probably more likely 18. Who does anything at eight months? Okay, so there we go. We did an analysis of all the Amazon reviews. We were trying to get a sense of, did we solve the right problem? And what is it that people actually love about the book? And what was really funny, like we did like a web, you know, word clouds, the one-star reviews and the five-star reviews, the biggest word was simple. So the thing that we really strove to do was make it simple, was what appealed to the vast majority of people. But then it was also the thing that turned the one-star people off. Oh, it's just one idea. And they knocked the book. But you're not going to make everybody happy, but that 80% that's the five-star reviews, that's the overriding theme. It was a simple approach. And for overwhelm, it really makes sense to give people a simple approach. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. So it's, it's almost like mission accomplished, even though the one star reviews didn't like it, they all got it. Like yeah. they all had the same experience. Know this. Don't spend too much time on the one star reviews. They should be, they should be educational, but you're not going to make everybody happy. So I think this part of like the ideation of a book is really, really fascinating of just kind of going, okay, so it doesn't have to be totally like groundbreaking original per se. It just has to solve a problem and it has to be a new perspective on something they probably already know of which the answer can be both, you know, known by a lot of people, which is where you might find it, but also very, very simple and presented simply. So I love that. Is there anything else on the writing process, both because of your experience as a writer, but also as an editor and managing a team? If somebody is sitting down, you know, like a lot of our clients are sort of working on their first book and right. they're you know, trying to get noticed by a literary agent or a publisher. And it's kind of like that. Oh my gosh, how do I take my entire life and like write this first book? Anything else that you think is helpful for people in like, you know, filtering down which ideas they should put into their book and, you know, the, the creative part of the process? I've shared this. I don't know if it works for everyone. When you're working with uh, business people that want to be authors, I found a helpful technique is because a lot of them are not actually authors, right? They have the ideas. They're going to have to work with someone, but most of them can go do a presentation. So my advice is, why don't you build your ideas and stories into basically a PowerPoint format and then go teach that every single month? Teach it every week if you can. And basically, you're rehearsing you know, your future keynote for the book again and again and again. And if you could teach a half-day class, go teach a half-day class because that allows you to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's not all about the exercises, right? Because it's hard to replicate an exercise in a book. But you start to see that story that you thought was so kick-ass, like people are still on their phones in the room. That mm -hmm. story that you didn't think was so strong, everybody's like paying attention. It's kind of like some people use blogs to test material. I actually like the immediacy of being in the room with people. As an author, if you're going to be successful, you got to master that skill anyway. And you teach the book and you find out really quickly what people do and don't respond to. You get to test things really quickly without all the headache of writing it and unwriting it. And what's really beautiful is someone's going to come out of the audience and go, this reminded me of my grandfather, or this reminds me of so-and-so. And you get stories that you would have never found in a Google search or any bibliography or library that immediately becomes that thing that's actually quite a unique story that you get to bring to your book. So yeah. I usually tell people, go teach it for five or six months and then come back and talk to me. I love that. One of the most memorable parts of procrastinating on purpose is this 30x rule. And I love that. That's my favorite uh, thing. I uh, teach that all the time. So it was an airplane. You were sitting uh, by Dude, yeah, on an airplane. Like I don't even I wish I knew the guy's name. Like I can't even give the guy credit, but like some dude sitting next to me on the airplane, he's like, Yeah, my college professor one time explained it this way. And I was just like, that is gold. And it's exactly what you're talking about is that, you know, a lot of that stuff, it's like, I think there's a big pressure on authors to feel like they have to be the creators of great ideas. And it's like, really, we can just be the conduit of great ideas. Think of it as curation. Um, yeah. I think that we have to give credit. I think if you're in the business of taking credit for other people's ideas, that will bite you. Sure. Um, eventually, right? Especially the bigger you get, the faster it happens. 
So you can curate ideas, just give people credit. Like I've had those stories, like the guy next to me on the airport that I can't credit, but I can at least say, this isn't my original idea, but I heard it. I knew it was valuable and therefore I'm sharing it. Yeah. And the whole idea of like a new idea versus a new approach. I mean, there's some Shakespeare quote, like there's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, there is some truth to that, that almost everything that we read, the number one bestseller charts, right? There is something there that is being regurgitated and served up for today's audience that we were familiar with before. Uh, yeah. So I guess that's like the essence of the theme of what you're talking about. It's not new ideas. It's a new approach. It's like a new organization of the ideas that are out there. Getting I love things that. done. David Allen, right? People have been talking about organizing ourselves to be more effective forever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He, I mean, what I took away from that book was a new way to manage thoughts in my head, a new way to file things in a file drawer. It was a new approach to things I was already doing that was just a lot better. And it was yeah. also kind of simple. Gosh, that's really, really good. So, okay, I want to shift now sure. to the promotional part. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, like it's that whole thing. It's like it's not called uh, – I think Robert Kiyosaki was the one who said it's not called New York Times Best Writing Author. It's New York Times bestselling author, which I do agree with, but I really love that we've spent our time so far talking about the integrity of the ideas, and I think that is often overlooked. I think, unfortunately, because there is such an opportunity to have a big platform from social media or whatever, you know, you can create a bestseller with a lot of platform and not a lot of great, you know, sort of content. But the promotion part, like, is it 50-50? Or like, what if you had to go... Like the content or the principles in the book versus the promotion of it, like how would you do, <laughs> do that balance? Okay, you just made me think of a really weird. There's a short story by Amy Bloom called Love is Not a Pie. And it's like literally about a polyamorous relationship that a child discovers. And the mother says, Love is not a pie. If I give you a slice, it's not like I have less to give to the other person. Mm. Hopefully, you know where I'm going. I think you're all in on creating great content and you have to be, it's like it's a hundred to hundred, right? I think when people just send a great idea out in the world and are not fully prepared to make it their full-time job to support that baby, they're fooling themselves. They're also, they're not giving that, that idea child every opportunity it has to flourish. So it doesn't have to be like a full-time 40 hour a week job, but it needs to be a preoccupation that you are regularly attacking it. So we designed a launch program. We have, um, at the time, I think we had about a hundred and, we had maybe even less than a hundred thousand agents when we launched the book. We have 170,000 now. But we knew we had a platform, a very big platform. But we thought it would take about 40,000 sales in the first month to make number one. And I remember I got a plan that was gonna sell 40,000, right? Um, what do people get when they buy one copy? What do they get when they buy 10? What do they get when they buy 500? And my publisher, Ray Bard, brilliant guy, said, and what do they get if they buy 5,000? What do they get if they buy 10,000? I wasn't thinking big enough. We've made a couple of those sales. They're very rare. But if we hadn't thought the problem through, we would have never made them. Wow. Right? So you look up and you have a plan for how we market to all of these segments we had a plan for how we would market the book to the bookstores. Like, this is why you want to put it face out. And we had a budget for helping them do that. But I remember Gary saying, well, you've shown me a plan to sell 40,000 books. 
don't you, <laughs> the whole book is about aim high, right? So we got to overshoot the mark. So he made me go back in January before April launch and create a plan to sell a hundred thousand copies. Mm. And so we implemented that plan. And oh, sold, grasshopper. That's like, and, yes, yes, yes. And we sold 44,000. Wow. So if we had implemented the 40,000 plan at that same percentage, we might have sold 18 or something, right? So first lesson is you make a plan much bigger than your goal because a lot of things are not going to work. Sometimes um, distributors, they shipments get lost. There's snowstorms and books don't show up in bookstores and I've had every manner of catastrophe happen. So we had that initial period where we went on the road. I think I spoke 36 times that year, which was a lot for a guy with two kids. I tried to space them out. I'll do like two back-to-back here, two back-to-back here. I'd never be gone on a weekend. And the next year I did 24. The next year I did 18. The next year I said yes to 12. And that's kind of where I've been staying at. I'll say yes about 12 times because I do have kids that still want to hang out with me. So I did not want to also become a professional speaker. But I remember we launched the book. We were selling in that, you know, 2000 a week. And then it was April when we launched. And about April of the next year, I remember around Christmas, the sales started declining. And we're like, we're watching it. We're watching it. We're watching it. I'm doing as many podcasts and all these things as I can. And the sales keep going down. At one point, they dropped all the way down to 400 a week. And then a year after, they started picking up, and they kept picking up for almost three straight years. And now we're back in that 1,200 a week kind of range, and it's kind of, that seems to be 800 to 1,600, depending on the week and what happened and how shipments turned out, seems to be where that book is landing. And that's, what a gift. I'll just say that. I'm not at all taking it for granted. We did a lot of work, though. I think it was two things. Every single week, I set a goal and I have a coach, he tracks me. Every single week, I had to do something to promote the book. So I was on a podcast, I did a radio, I did a TV, I did a speaking appearance. So I love things that don't take me like this. I don't have to leave my office or my family to talk about my book with you and you then share it with your network. So mm-hmm. podcast is highly leveraged. Every single week, I did at least one activity, sometimes more. And I've been doing that for six and a half years. So. Gary, who runs a huge company, and he stopped doing any public appearances, I think by August of that year, and he's only done two interviews since. He did Ty Lopez, and last week he did Tim Ferriss. But Mm. if I put him in the job of salesperson, that's a poor use of his time. We're a partnership, but someone's got to do it. So I tried to make sure I managed my time, that we were building our email list, we were always interacting with our customers, We have a hashtag. This is a great tip. Create a unique hashtag that's in your book. Because people Instagram, they post their favorite books, right? And then follow that and interact with all of those customers. So a lot of my promotional opportunities were kind of ad hoc. I'd see that somebody posted a picture and said, oh, this is our book club book. And it was in some small company in Florida. And I would DM that person and say, hey, would you like me to zoom in or Skype in and you can do a Q&A. Like, I don't want to do a speech, but they can, I say, you want to play stump the author, I'll make you look good to your boss. Uh-huh. So you're winning an advocate inside that company now. And then all those people are like, wow, we actually got to talk to a best-selling author today. Like that's a, most people don't get that. So using that. But most hashtag, authors would never do that. Most authors would never be like, oh yeah, some small company in Florida, like what, what they're not worth the time to engage with. 
Well, I did that, by the way, and we signed a six-figure contract with a Fortune 5 company, which I'm not legally allowed to name, like two weeks ago. It all started with me doing an internal only for a very small group, said, would you come in and do a book talk? And I went in and I just did a Q&A around time blocking, which is one of our concepts. And that, it took three and a half years, right? But that relationship stayed, that advocate became a champion, that champion got a promotion, and then they started to get to make decisions. And then, right, you just see how those dominoes line up. But pretty much I'll only say yes when someone says, will you come speak or talk? I got invited to Google. They wanted me to talk about investing. I'll say, I'll talk about investing if we can talk about it through the framework of the one thing. Hmm. I'm not a paid speaker. I'm not going just to go to Google. I'm going to promote being single-minded about it. So anyway, I just do a bunch of stuff at you. So I'll shut up so you can actually make this an interview, not a dial, uh, not a monologue. No, this is great. This is what we want. I mean, just like the, your mindset on this stuff. So in terms of the tactical, like, okay, if I just had to create a checklist, like, okay, let's say my book is launching, whatever, sometime this year. What are the things like, okay, so we know speaking, right? Like we know speaking, we know podcasts, we know like going on other people's podcasts. What else can we do? Like people do columns, right? They get their Forbes column. They do that. I think that actually it can lead to sales. I think it helps them in terms of visibility. It helps them in terms of branding. I think that helps convert sales more than make them. But if you're strategic in who you're interviewing, having a podcast, having a blog, having a column in one of those magazines, right, online magazines, it gives you a platform to reach out to influencers. So I could be, hey, Rory, I'm trying to write an article. I don't do this because I want to write books. I don't want to write columns. But I'd be like, hey, I've got a Forbes column. This month, I'm talking about personal branding. Can I interview you? Yeah. One, so that's a win for you, right? You have a business that you'd love to have free promotion, but now I get to talk to you and I'm talking to you and we're sharing frameworks for books. And this is how, like a lot of our partnership, right? Where yeah. our frameworks work really well together. Procrastinate on Purpose is a great companion book for the one thing. So it's yeah. a win for my audience and vice versa. And you end up in this collaborative environment where one in 50, right? One in 20 becomes someone that opens doors for you or makes introductions. So Everything, I mean, I go to breakfast every, I'm an introvert. Every Wednesday, I have coffee with a stranger. I've been doing that for six years. I started doing it when the one thing launched because I knew if I didn't do some networking activity, I would get burnt. And my goal was just to add 50 cool people to my network every year. That mm -hmm. has blossomed into its own platform. How many of them are actually cool? Is it 50 or less than 50? I think because of the way it works. So the first year was the hardest. Um, I just went through my LinkedIn and started inviting people in Austin. And I ended up in front of salespeople trying to sell me stuff, whatever. Yeah. But I showed up with no agenda. And I just said, hey, I'm just, I hear that you're awesome at X. Talk wow. to me. Teach me. And if I had something I could share with them, I would. And I never had an agenda. And what happened is I did 50 the first year and quit because it was exhausting for me to meet strangers. Yeah. And the next year, so many of those people referred me talent that I did 79, the next year was 129. Wow, that's a lot of meetings. Yeah, it's breakfast. I can go up, show up for 30 minutes, get to know someone. And then my coach, about three years into it, said, how are you staying in touch with them? And I said, well, they're all extroverts. They call and text and email me. And 
he asked me like the tough questions, is that how you want to work it? And I said, okay, I came up with a plan and I created a newsletter. And right now I think I've got about 450 people on it, but it's a pretty select group. I filled about eight positions in our various businesses from that network. By wow. asking, we have an opportunity. I've been able to populate some of our events through referrals through that, but I have an open rate, I think of 45%. And I just say, Hey, this is what I'm up to. That actually goes out today. And it's just a real short half page, three or four bullet points, but it allows me to be in their inbox once a month in a way that I'm bringing value to them. So coming up, just have a plan, right? It's not so much what you do, it's that you do and that you do it strategically. And in terms of like the airport bookstores and stuff, yeah, like the money that you spend there, I mean, can you just like talk a little bit about how that works? Because lots of people want to be in there. I mean, that was like my initial dream was walking through the airport and it's like, oh my gosh, one day, you know, can you just give us a, just like a little high level on how the airport bookstores work? Yep. Every year, the one thing has been out, we spent on the low end, 109,000 on the high end, 195. Wow. So that is all paid placement. And the game you're playing, I made most, there's very little tracking. Hudson's reports to the bestseller list, so they charge a lot. It very rarely makes you money. And I've actually, I was just corresponding with James Clear, another bestselling author, and because I coached him a little bit on this. And his book sells great, but it didn't sell well in those bookstores. But mm -hmm. he still... What I found and he found is when it was in those bookstores, we got a lot more high-paying high speaking gigs because the kinds of people who book those and think about those are the people buying books in airport bookstores. So the first year, I measured it out. I didn't do any – I think I did one paying speaking gig the first year because I was mostly going to our network. Um, I did Cutco Knives or something, right, for like $3,000. And you look at that, but I still think we got 50 cents on the dollar back. And we asked the question, do we keep doing it? So I kept doing it. That's a lot it, of dough. It is a lot I mean, of dough. But most people are losing money a lot more than that. Because you pay to be in the bookstore, you only make money when they sell them. So your book has to sell or they won't stock it or take your money. And if it sells enough, the virtuous cycle is for about three years, we spent substantial time on the Hudson's bestseller list. And when you get on the Hudson's bestseller list, you get free face out placement on their top 10. And that uh -huh. goes from the paid 200 stores where you can buy space on a table. Now you're in 720 and it's free. That flips the whole cycle. And that alone, Barnes and Noble actually is a always been a money making and books a million. So books a million, Barnes and Noble, I get a return. And when you're a bestseller at Hudson's, it paid for the entire spend. So for about three and a half years, we actually made money when you net it all out. And then other times we've almost broken even or just been a little bit one way or the other. Just on Hudson you're talking about. Hudson's is a big difference maker, which is it reports to the bestseller list. And if you get on their bestseller list, you get tons of free placement. Yeah. Okay. So then it's kind of like you're not making money on the book, but you are from speaking. And then if you can make their bestseller list, then that, they give you a lot more additional exposure. You said 700 stores. If you I think it's 770 or 720 stores, I don't know the exact figure. That's um, crazy. My deal, the deal Gary and I have with uh, Ray Bard, 
is we're almost a co-publishing agreement. So he, it's a very different model, right? And there are a few other companies that do it, but you can always negotiate this. We had the ability to set the co-op marketing budget because we were going to pay for it. And my conditions on that were, I want to know what my rate of return is. So I had to get regular reporting. And sometimes they literally had to call the stores and say, how many did you sell? Because a lot of them don't report electronically. It's blind. And we got a sense of what our cost per sale was. And we were able to back out our margin. So I wanted to do it like a business person. I didn't want to do it like someone just buying brand, which is what most of them are doing. They're just trying to get brand exposure. And it's very valuable. The perception of those books. Wow, I saw your book in an airport. They assume you're selling millions, right? Most people aren't inside knowing how few books most books sell. Mm-hmm. But that creates massive brand recognition. And they don't realize that you're not selling millions, you're spending millions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on, so, on the inside, we know. Those accounts can be very valuable. And so I would just say work it out with your publisher say, especially for the first year when I'm really trying to build my platform, I would like the ability to have consultation and the ability to increase your co-op spend. There's no one that can determine whether Hudson's will take your money or any of those parodies or those stores, right? But then you at least have the ability to invest in that brand building. But as a business person, you also want to see the results if possible, because like I said, it's, you have to monitor it. Yeah. And so usually that return on that investment. So when you talk about the investing money, like not the free stuff, but the investing, it's like Facebook ads, bookstores, those are like some of the big ones. Then basically the return on that is usually more like paid speaking or consulting, you know, and then any royalties, of course, but that's not going to really make the dent probably. The big money in books, unless you sell many, many, many copies is always in that book helps you convert more customers to your high margin business. Right. I have yet to see anyone who spends money on Facebook advertising for a book that actually nets money from that. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Well, margins are too small. Yeah. It's a really, really interesting game. Well, Jay, this has been so helpful and so (laughs) insightful and just like, I think informative. I know a lot of people don't even understand how bookstores work in the airports and stuff. And, we appreciate you so much. Where do you want people to go to follow you, learn about the one thing, like staying connected with what you guys are up to? Um, I would love it if they go to the one thing.com and that's with the number one. Um, everything about our business, our training is there and they can find my Instagram and stuff and they can always DM me. I try to monitor those accounts personally um, because I do the one thing. I don't do that daily, uh, but I do it it very regularly so they won't sit in my Twitter you know Twitter DM thing for a month but it might take me a week or so to get back but I'm happy to interact and um, I love to find out that people are living the book yeah that is awesome um, well you guys you guys have been amazing and, and, and this is so cool to just get a little bit of a, a you know insight into what goes on in, in the mind of real mega bestsellers Um, So thank you for sharing so generously and for just being accessible for for an introvert. You're you're actually an exceptionally accessible um, guy. And, uh, you know, I just really appreciate you and appreciate all that you've done for us, my friend. Thank you so much.
That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free 30-day access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we'll get you set up with free access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, just please share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation.